to say that, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago, and joining us is the founder of Mission USA, Glenn Fitzgerald. I am existentially ready. <laughs> Not a bad podcast name if we talked about other stuff. Also joining us, the director of Mission USA Productions, Jed Brewer. That's pretty sweet, man. Joining us all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. I pod, therefore I am. Aha. Mm. That's, yeah, that's, that's, somebody thinks that, which is, there's a guy in Brooklyn who's making that case unironically <laughs> right now. <laughs> that's it to his parents. <laughs> well, you can do it in somebody else's basement then. I have an MFA in podcasting from Columbia. <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, I, with all this chicanery aside, I feel uh, forced to declare one of our favorite kinds of emergency, and that's a potential grift emergency. Ooh. Ooh. I love grifting. But is this where we'll be able to grift on it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. It's not an emergency to get grifted. That's easy. Oh, okay. I just go outside with my deck of cards and, uh, you know, in my sweater vest and just wait for the, wait for the pigeons to come to me. <laughs> That's right. But no, so we, we have a, a, a friend uh, up here in Chicago who recently was des- describing a situation where their, uh, the, an organiz- a nonprofit organization they're part of has some space that they rent out throughout the week and, uh, so that's uh, churches, other religious organizations, community groups, it's anybody who's doing good stuff in the community, they're happy to, you know, let them have the space if, if it's available. And one of the churches that was uh, renting that space uh, decided that they could no longer be involved here because there was a group coming in the day before that was leaving things in disarray. You mean like the chairs weren't put away or like, you know, there's food left out or something like that? Just confetti everywhere. Yeah, just Rip Torn has a church for some reason. Buddy. That's a very old reference. That's a Wayne's World 2 reference. That's rough. Um, no, I, I, that would make a lot of sense, Jed. More, uh, more leftover demons. Aha! Okay. Because the people had the place on Saturday. They let all the demons in. And you can't have all them demons out by Sunday. So we won't be renting this space from you anymore. <laughs> I heard your the the just the inflection of the way that you said it. I heard it as like leftover demons, like demons that you get from eating leftovers in the fridge, and that sounds like something my kids are actually afraid of because the leftovers never really get eaten. Yeah, you know, you don't want to get demons. Possible, or they could be demons that you keep in Tupperware. Sure, absolutely. Until you need them the next day, and yeah, it seals in the fresh. freshness, you know. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the Ghostbusters really set us up for that. They had a lot more protective uh, layers than the than the uh, Tupperware. Well, that's a very fair point. Um, speaking of that, uh, that that did spark in in Glenn a lovely idea that I think we could flesh out on the show here, which is you know we're going to have presumably at some point you know things will be opening back up, people will be using the church buildings again, and uh, you know who knows what kind of demons have. Uh, hold up in there in the meantime. Yeah. Because here's the thing. We've heard this uh, as the bridge organization from multiple sources over the years. But they didn't want, weirdly, it's always things that uh, poor people are involved in. They didn't want to bring the demons in there, including a, a pastor who very earnestly told our staff member, P. Lawson, that pulpit demons are the worst. <laughs> and they're very <laughs> yeah. hard to get out. Yeah, they're very hard to get out. 
actual <laughs> thing we were told. We can't rent this space to you because of the potential of pulpit demons. Yeah, and across the, the ideological, the denominational spectrum, we've had these kind of concerns uh, expressed to us. Now, understand, he didn't want us to be offended by that. Well, what's to be offensive? We had explained to him who could possibly be offended by something like that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfectly reasonable concern on your part that we would just bring in, you know, like, uh, very highly placed people in large denominations who would come in and preach and probably infest your pulpit with demons. <laughs> infest. Here's that thing. happens all the time. Like anyone who's preached a bunch of sermons, and uh, that's all of us on this podcast, I've laid some stinkers. I'm, I'm going to cop to that. But I've right. never accidentally conjured Baphomet, you know? Right. That you know of. That you well, know I, of. <laughs> I love the idea of Matt preaching a sermon, knowing that he's whiffing, and then just at the end of it, looking at his watch and then going, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Right. I feel like some there I feel like there have been some sermons where the audience would have preferred that. Like, well, I didn't get anything out of it, but he conjured a spirit at the end, so that's something. Is Michael Keaton coming to this service? Uh, I, I understand. I have bombed bad enough many times where I'm pretty sure I could see a demon in the background checking his watch and saying, well, my work here is done. I'm going <laughs> to knock off early. <laughs> I need to go get a drink. You this know. was an and easy then, morning. That guy did all the discouraging for me. That's right. I'm going to grab a coffee. But that, that right. did bring to Glenn the genius idea of the, the con we could get going of demon busters. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Because somebody's yeah. got to come in and get these demons out. Well, that's right. Because the beauty of it is the demons are made up. So you can come in and, I mean, you got to sell it. You can't sure. just come in and say, that's it, we got them. You know, you, you got you to gotta do a little, uh, you know, check for ectoplasm. It's a real snipe hunt <laughs> situation. You got to have some theatrics. Yeah, totally. you know, like, you, you know, uh, uh, you, you get something that beeps a lot, you know, that kind of, you know, check it, say, oh, I, oh. And, you know, look like you're detecting something. <laughs> and then you say, okay, well, you know, we, we, you know, we got them out. Uh, but call us if you get any more demons and we'll come back. Well, you got a six month demon warranty. That's I mean, if, right. you, if you have sure. fresh demon problems in the first six months after our services, we will come back for your charge. A yeah, six month limited demon warranty. Well, yeah, obviously. De- it covers demon parts, but not demon labor. <laughs> can people, <laughs> can people upgrade? To like, you know, different tiers of coverage, like this one, this one deals with, you know, like shrieking. This one oh. deals, with, deals with like nightmares. Sure. Like if you really want to take it all the way up. Then Update we can... to the brimstone package. <laughs> yeah, you got your poltergeist. You got, uh, what about those demons that, uh, you know, that cause you to be unbearably boring? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I feel I, like now these pastors are using that as an excuse for the boring right. sermon, right? Yeah. Well, that, that's fine with us because then they can tell the they can tell the congregation they can get in on it. Say, I know this has been just painfully boring, but it turns out the reason I preach for fifty minutes, twenty of which is about a book I read, is demons. Sure, you absolutely. think I want to be doing that? I don't. 
<laughs> so we bring in these four jokers in the jumpsuits. They're going to get the demons right out. <laughs> but no, wait, wait a second. Here's the genius part of this. Cause you got to figure out an angle. That's the whole thing here. I, I don't need to tell you guys, you got to have an angle, right. whatever it is. Here's the angle. The pa- pastor, we come in and tell him you're preaching great. But the demon is keeping them from hearing it. Yeah. Oh. yeah. See what I'm there saying? Translation there demon. They're hearing a boring sermon, but you're preaching an amazing sermon. So that's why we got to get rid of these dang demons. I think I think that's beautiful. I think this that's the real business opportunity here is us to make up the taxonomy of demon. Because yeah. that's you know we're all uh, we're all people who have had to have work done in our homes. And where it gets expensive is when the guy comes in and says, well, we thought this was going to be real basic. Right. But it turns out, and then he says a bunch of acronyms, and now you owe him a boat payment worth of uh, things so that your wiring works. So I think we get in there and say, well, I know we told you the pulpit demon price, and that's what it was. But it turns out we have boring sermon translation demons. Aha. Right. You know the reason that your that your guitar player sounds bad. It's not that he's bad. It's a it's a tuning demon. (laughs) (laughs) You've got one of those F chord demons, and they're pesky. Okay, they're hard to get rid of. Yeah, you you know you're 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 mashing down, but it's just not happening. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I'm sorry, but I yeah I think uh, this is a a a good. business opportunity because uh, you know there's a lot of concern apparently that this is happening and uh you you don't want people to uh to be worried about these things you can come in and and set their minds at ease that's that's an important service absolutely i think that as ever the big money is going to be in the c.s lewis connection because mm. you tell me it turns out you got one of them worm tongues in here right <laughs> You really, yeah, you know, because it's a normal demon package, but if, yeah, we'll tell you, you got a famous demon in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, you know, and then, then you can, uh, you know, go through all of your, you know, uh, your, your, your bail related demons, you know, you got your Beelzebub you got, situation. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you got all kinds of, you know, like, you know, like if it's, uh, like, a uh, Lutheran in sort of like an area where they have, uh, like up north, you you might put like a Norse demons in there. Oh wow, oh. yes, because that they'd be concerned about that. You know, I was thinking casserole demon, but that's maybe a different flavor of Lutheran. Well, yeah, yeah, you got to target it to the community. Is what I'm saying. Sure, and as you can imagine, this this whole thing will consist of us just closing the doors. Spraying a little Febreze, knocking over some tables. Yeah. Flashing lights back and forth and declaring, we got him. Yeah, that's it. You know, yeah. some some listeners might have a problem with with us just kind of obviously inventing a problem so that we could profit from it. But understand, please, that this whole thing started because someone completely invented something because they <laughs> right. didn't want to admit what they actually had a problem about. That's right. Yeah, and if, dear listener, if you have a problem with people inventing fake services to address problems that aren't really problems, I have some bad news for you about the economy. 
<laughs> yeah. Now this is uh you know the people are concerned uh about uh, pulpit demons, you know. Uh people are are concerned about uh getting rid of all the the demons that are coming into the church. And that's probably why they have so many problems as opposed to, you know, being manipulative and trying to make people feel horrible. And not doing discipleship and not really knowing how to do ministry. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's not that, it's the demons. Yep. Good news is we can solve that demon problem for you. That's right. For a totally unreasonable fee. (laughs) Yeah, we got jumpsuits, we got Tupperware, and I think we're ready to go. I Um, saw somebody cruising around in a black Aventador earlier today, and I feel like that should be our demon mobile. I mean, oh, sure. yeah. we could we could get on the scene pretty quick with that. Well, you know, we take this job seriously. You know, if right. we tell you we're getting redeemed, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it fast. That's it. Jed rolling up, aviators, Aventador. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, would you still have the jumpsuit on in the Aventador? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I want to commit to the bit, so sure. You know, I mean. I don't want to do things halfway. It, you know, depending on the amount of business that we're able to to scare up, it may be a finely tailored 100% silk jumpsuit. Right. But, but yes, wow. I mean, pinstripe Jed's is the only one with pinstripes. Exactly. Exactly. Well, the beauty about this part is people say, "Well, why why does the the rest of you show up in a van and with jumpsuits on? Why is the one dude in the, you know, the silk Pinstriped suit with the inventory. So well, he he's he trained demon hunting in Italy. Right. <laughs> he learned the old the old country ways. That's right. Well, I think fellas, we're gonna make a mint, and I think we we can declare uh emergency off con on. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh one thing that is definitely not a grift or a con of any way is Bridgebox. It's a service yeah. offered for a fair price. Uh, an encouraging, a little encouragement comes to your inbox the first every month. You get some songs, some sermons, Bible studies, all sorts of good stuff for a a pittance of $8 a month. MissionUSA.com slash Bridgebox. You'd like to check that out. You can also join us over on our Facebook page every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. for our weekly live Bridgecast. If you can't catch it live, you can also find every single one of those archived in the videos tab over at Facebook.com. Slash the bridge Chicago. We're gonna jump to our first question here. If you have this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down into your episode description, find the links at the bottom of that. Our first question comes in anonymously to our Tumblr and says, It's become clear to me that I rushed into my marriage thinking it would fix my other issues. But I can see now that we simply don't have the chemistry. After several years, we keep misunderstanding each other, even on the small things, and don't connect. The thing is, though, we have kids. My question is, how do you weigh the trauma a split would cause for the children versus the effects of growing up in a loveless house? Is it worth it staying together until the kids are older and more equipped? And this is, dear listener, is your slightly regular reminder that whatever you write in, we will answer and we will do our (laughs) absolute best with it. No exceptions. And Glenn, obviously a lot going on. Yeah, uh, and a lot of layers, but where would we start on this whole thing? Well, we're going to start by telling you that 
uh, you're not alone. Uh, you're right. not the only uh, people who have this kind of struggle. Uh, and you need to be aware that you have support and you have encouragement. And we want to give that to you. Uh, I would also start with uh, if you are not getting professional quality help right now, now's the time. Right. Uh, and I would get a bucket load of it before I even thought about that divorce word. That that doesn't mean I'm trying to get you to take it off the table in altogether, uh, but it does mean that uh, this is a place where you need professional help. This is this is that point. Um, and I also would encourage you that finding the right uh, marriage counselor can take a lot of looking around. Uh, it mm. can be a process of just being picky and looking, have it set in your mind. We might look at four or five people in the long run. Uh, somebody might get us from A to B, but can't get us from B to C. Uh, and that's all acceptable and that's all good. It, it's it's good to be picky about these things. And, 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 you know, maybe you've had some cool conversations with a pastor and, you know, it's like, you don't want to hurt his feelings or something like that. Or, Hurt his feelings. Go find somebody else. Yeah. Uh, this is this is your marriage. This is your life. You guys deserve to have the best quality help that you can get. And um, I think you know th this is one of those where if this came up in real life, I would be asking a thousand questions before I said any of the stuff that I'm about to say now, uh, because really, there's only so many things we can say definitively without a lot of detail. On it, so we encourage you to hit us back with those details and and give us a chance to dive into it. We want to do that, uh, but I think it's important uh, to look at what we definitely can say, even just with the limited details we have here. And you're talking about bad chemistry. Uh, in my experience, bad chemistry is um, ends up being looking more like a tug of war in some sort of way. Of I'm the way I am. This other person is the way that they are. Nobody wants to move. Nobody wants to change. It's a tug of war. You know, are you going to do it my way? Am I going to do it your way? I don't want to do it your way. You don't want to do it my way. Uh, and it hurts my feelings. You won't compromise on that. And it hurts your feelings. I won't compromise with you. And we're stuck. This is the kind of thing that counseling can unravel and, and give you tools, practical tools that you can use to get back on track and have a whole new marriage. And, and in, in some ways, maybe, uh, as, as we sometimes talk about on the podcast, having sort of a marriage 2.0 of saying, okay, rather than divorce this person and find another one, you might actually find it better and easier to just end the first uh, attempt at this marriage and make an entirely new attempt with new rules and new ideas and new strategies and all of that, and then just do a 2.0 of it. I think I think that's much more. Um, that's a that's a shorter path to success, and I I know it doesn't sound like that at right. all. When you have bad chemistry, you've got two messed up people, most likely. Now you might have one person who is sort of driving that one person who has an obvious struggle of some kind, might be an addiction, might be an undealt with trauma, something like that. Uh, but even in that case, you have an addicted person and an enabler. So it's still always 
two people that have a problem, two people who have a struggle of some kind. We're not talking about blame. In fact, we're kind of going the opposite direction of that. We're just looking at the dynamic. You have two people that have, um, uh, 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 they're locked into a struggle and we can't find our way out. Here's the important part. The next person that you want to hook up with, you are still going to have your bad chemistry there part of that. So that's got, that's, you can move on to another one and think, well, this one's going to be better than the last one because she doesn't have the issues the last one had. Maybe so, but you still got your issues. So I think that's the main thing I want us to start us on, let these guys get deeper into the details. But the main thing I want you to look at is look at everything in you that needs to change and change that even if it doesn't fix this marriage because you will definitely need it if you're going to go in on to start all over from scratch with a whole new person, uh, you're still going to have to deal with those things within you that need change. Why not change those things now? Amen. Because that might be sparking something that uh, where we can find new life and, and find a different relationship than we ever had before. That's all really, really good stuff and a great place to start us off. And Jed, I'd love to get you to pick up that point about chemistry because um, that's a very ill-defined and kind of, I think in a lot of ways, in relationship ways, uses kind of a magic, ineffable word. But a lot of times, I think it's what's going on in this question as we we just read the text of it, um, it's used to describe things that are actually pretty um, building block basic and in a way mundane. No, you're absolutely right. You know, so particularly when people are in dating relationships, when they talk about chemistry, what they mean is, are we hot for each other? Which right. that does actually matter. Um, that's that is an important thing. But chemistry is very, very different from just the ability to engage in basic communication. These are not the same thing. And I think that if you were in a different situation, you'd kind of know that. I imagine that in your life you have all kinds of people that you need to be able to communicate effectively with that you are not attracted to in any way. Um, you know, people that you work with, you know, maybe other people that you're related to. So I hear you describing a concern about chemistry, which again, I think it's worth asking, are we talking about how attracted we are to each other? You're also talking about an ability to engage in basic communication. And I think it's worth noting that um, although chemistry can be hard to nail down and and a little bit hard to predict, basic communication is not. If you want to get better at that, you can definitely get better at that. Uh, That is for sure a skill at which one can improve. So the the thing that I would want to ask you to do is a little bit of a thought experiment, which is suppose that the uh, fairy marriage mother uh, came down with her magic wand and if you wanted, would bop you both on the head and you'd just be teleported into a good marriage. Just, just no work at all. You could just, she would just bop you and then you would have a good marriage. And my question is, would you want that? Do you want to yep. be married to this person in a good and functional marriage? Mm, yeah. If you both want that, I think you can journey towards that. 
you should definitely, no question, do exactly what Glenn did. Um, go audition several marriage counselors. Find someone that you both yes. feel really, really good about. That that because that person's ultimately gonna gonna ask you some tough questions and and kind of encourage you to look at some things about yourselves that you may not want to look at. But if you both would want to be teleported into a healthy, functional marriage, if that were possible, then you can work. To, to move in that direction and to get towards something better. It, it can be improved. There, there's no question about that. If you aren't sure that you would want to be in a, um, you know, just a healthy functional marriage, you know, even, even with no work, I think it is worth asking. And this may go back a bit to the chemistry question of what got you interested in this person to begin with? Mm. Where, where did we start? with all of this, because what it sounds like in your question and as Glenn and Glenn is right, there's a million details that would be helpful to know in all of this. But you know, what, what sounds like in this question is kind of the, the deep existential sigh of, I have made a huge mistake mm. and maybe you have, I, I don't know, but maybe you haven't. Um, maybe there was something about this person that drew you to them and, and drew them to you. And, um, there was a spark there and and maybe we took some some not that great turns and maybe we took them pretty early on and maybe we we kept taking them but i wouldn't assume that it that it has to be all doom and gloom um you know uh, that i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily make that assumption i again i think it's worth looking at would you want a good marriage to this person what was there ever anything there to begin with? Um, and, and if so, how do we how do we build on that? Which, again, would be a, a great thing to talk to a marriage counselor about. But here's the other side of it. If for whatever reason you decide, no, we need this is th- this has not worked. It will not work. We at, at some point we need to go our separate ways. If, if that's where this lands, first of all, no judgment. Um, right. Second. I do want to encourage you on one thing. So Glenn mentioned the next person. There will someday inevitably be a next person. But the following may sound a little weird, um, and I it, it will almost sound like I'm moralizing. I'm really not. I just need you to, to, to hear me on this. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Don't yeah. cheat. Don't yeah. cheat. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Get a divorce first, then date whoever you want. Get a divorce first, then date whoever you want. It sounds like a small difference. It is not. I can't put into Mm. words how important this is. Don't cheat. Get a divorce first, then do what you want to do. The number of problems that you will solve by doing things in that order, words fail to convey. And if you want to know something that that would be best for your kids, it is doing things in that order. Don't cheat divorce first if that's what it must be and then move on from there uh, uh jed just to double check should should someone cheat no you should okay. not do that that's we like to be clear that's very very good advice all of it and that last part is super duper true yeah. and especially true what jed said about uh making a role of difference with your kids um and Leah, i'd love to get to pivot to you on that point because i think these guys are a great job with with the marriage part of it um, so there's the, the aspect of what is the least traumatizing thing to do, uh, for the kids, which 
you know, again, if we were sitting down with with uh, this, if this guy was a friend of ours, and we were sitting down with him. I imagine one of the things we'd all be telling him is, "This is a decision you have to make for you reasons on some level." And that's right. You pushing that off to what's best for the kids is not going to help that decision making process. But children are a part of the the overall arc here. So where does that fit in? Um, that's a. It's such an important thing. This is such a deep thing. This is such a, uh, again, I, I love how Matt started this whole thing off. We don't shy away from any question. And, and I love where Glenn immediately took that, which is it's time to seek professional help. That being the case, um, we will talk to this. Um, I am a child of divorced parents. And I have, I, I mean, every now and then I hear a song or see a photograph or have some memory or something odd just triggers the fact that my, you know, that my parents' marriage is broken and I have a huge emotional response to that. Um, I, I guess that's some trauma. I, I've got, I've got some difficult emotions that I, I occasionally have to weed through on that, but let me be very crystal clear about that. That's not my biggest problem with my parents' parenting. Um, my parents, and if they wanted to engage that conversation, we could talk, uh, we could have some really good conversations about what went wrong parenting-wise outside of the divorce. The reason I tell you that is to say this. There is, and I, I have to, I feel like I want to say this and then immediately underline it. There is no 100% yield machine that will create Traumaless kids. There is no, uh, if we parent this way, our kids won't have any problems. There is not that thing. And there is not a thing that says, if we get divorced, our kids will 100% have trauma off that. So what we need to do is keep them in this loveless home. And then, and and then will they have different trauma off of that? We don't know. Uh, you can parent really, really well in the midst of a, after a divorce, and you could parent really, really well in the midst of what you're living through now. You could also parent really poorly in both of those situations. I, as a person who has worked with teenagers for the past 20 years, and as a person who has been in a product of a divorced home, divorced parents, I can tell you I've seen it all. I've seen terrible parenting in uh, uh, really strong marriages. I've seen great parenting after divorces. I've seen all of that parenting. One of the things that Matt set up in, in the way that he was kind of pitching me the question is a really important thing, which is you and your spouse need to decide for you what you're going to do. I can tell you this. Kids can smell when you are doing something supposedly for them, like we are staying together for the kids, but that actually has nothing to do with what we're doing. Like we don't, we don't know how, how we're doing parenting. We have no kind of overarching philosophy about that. We have no strategies about that. We're not uh, taking care of the marriage, uh, you know, in, in any sake for ourselves. We're supposedly doing this for the kids. They can smell all that stuff and they hate it. Kids hate that stuff. 
They hate being the reason for things. They hate being to blame for things in some weird way. Matt's exactly right. You guys need to decide what you're going to do for your relationship. And then whatever the case is, if you get guided down the pathway to uh, dissolution of this marriage, or if you get guided down the pathway of the repair of this marriage, what you need to do is to be an awesome parent in the middle of that regardless. Um, If you stay together, if you split up, your parenting needs to be honest. It needs to be humble. It needs to be the kind of parent that asks forgiveness, the kind of parent who um, listens to uh, listens to your children, who uh, gives them a voice in your home, all of those kinds of things. Things that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast about what it means to be a parent. But I, I set all of that up to say, you can, there, there is no like, if we do it this way, we're guaranteed to have traumaless kids. That's not a thing. Or if we do it this way, we're guaranteed to have screwed up kids. That That's not the way that works. Every kid is different. The way that they respond to these types of situations is completely different. It's possible for you to parent well and parent poorly in the midst of either outcome. Um, That being the case, these guys have said it. We've said it before on the podcast. Chemistry is not an issue. So often what we hear inside the church and outside the church and movies and media and everything else is, if I had just picked the right person, then marriage would have been so simple. Mm-hmm. That is not a thing. Mm-hmm. That's I'll not tell a you, thing. I'll tell you this right now. Uh, when my mom left my dad, she had a laundry list uh, of things that were wrong with my dad. And then guess what? She got married to guy number two. He probably had 80% of the things on that list. Right. And guess what? They're all too broke to get divorced again. Now they just got to buckle down and make that junk work. I mean, that's one thing people don't tell you is divorce is the most expensive thing human beings do. Say that. It is the most expensive thing humans do. The only people that can get divorced five times are people like Elizabeth Taylor who have endless amounts of money. You can't do that over and over again. So what happens is inevitably you get married to the second person who, by the way, will be a human being. And full of sins and problems and hang-ups and all kinds of immaturity and insecurity and everything else. And you got to figure out how to make that thing work. Why? Because you're too broke to do anything else. And that's not me shaming you into, into making this marriage work. It's just me being real about the world that we live in, which is that anybody that you hook up with, you're going to have some, some problems. And at a certain point, you might chalk them up to chemistry. But in the end... We've got to figure out how to make a marriage work with two imperfect people. That may be this one. It may be the next one. Glenn's exactly right. Jed's exactly right. Matt was right to underline and make Jed say it again. Um, but we don't want to pass this off on the kids or, or uh, uh, not deal with it for the sake of the kids. They can smell that stuff. They hate it. What's the best thing for you to do is to figure out how can I be the best parent I can be regardless of what this marriage situation is, be humble, listen, give them a voice, give them a seat at the table and work with them, be there for them, make them know that they're not alone, that this thing is not their fault and, and take care of them and dive into that relationship.
That's all uh, fantastic stuff. That is exactly what we needed on that one. I, I will draw a comparison to a situation we had at the bridge. I don't know, this was a few years back, but uh, our topic was something along the lines of is related, kind of on the other thing, some of which we get a lot in the inner city in Chicago. Somebody saying basically like, I am with this woman and we are not married, but for a number of other reasons, we kind of think we should be uh, shacking up. So uh, what do we do about that? And we we kind of went as we tend to do our lunch meeting. We talked through well, this is why you know this is why marriage is important and da da da. da. And we kind of gotten through this whole thing. And Glenn, uh, in a very wise moment, as he is prone to have, just kind of got silent for a second and said, "Wait, but they're going to do the bad idea. Like we can tell them what the good idea is. What are are, are they asking how to do the bad idea in a good way?" <laughs> right. And we're like, yeah, probably. And here's the weird thing. That's doable. Right. You can do the best version of a bad situation. But uh, what we arrived at, at about that is exactly what Lee is lining out here in the parenting thing. That's not about making the best bad decision. That's about confronting the bad scenario you are in and working to do the things that make that a good situation. If you are that's right. Two people who are in the inner city who have no money and are not married and are living together, that that's that's the situation you're in. So the question is how do we behave and how do we interact with each other in a way that makes that survivable? If you're in this situation, as Lee said, the question is not if we stay together, you know, the kids have an X amount of chance of being this traumatized if we split up the kids question is, what are you going to do? And then how are you going to do it is kind of where everything else on the fallout of that is. But we will close this out by reiterating the the very, very important place that Glenn started us, which is if you're not in marriage counseling, get in it. Um, Whatever you you have to do, however inconvenient, however scary, we understand all that. Do that. You owe that to yourself. You owe that to your spouse. You owe that to your kids to take that uh, very, very important chance at things, no matter how they turn out. Lee, one more thing. And if wherever you live, if you don't know how to find, like if you don't feel like you can afford marriage counseling, um, then please contact us. We could be an aid in figuring out uh, some, some resources and some connections and maybe working some of those. When, when you, when you get into a relationship with a guy like Glenn, you find out he kind of knows people everywhere. And so it could be that we have some connections or something like that, whatever your locality is. But don't let there be a thing of like, well, we could never afford that. Therefore, we're not going to do this very, very wise thing. Exactly. In most places, uh, Glenn Connection or not, have uh, sliding scale therapy. And a lot of uh, there, there's probably an option out there for you. All right, move on to our next question here. It comes in anonymously, and it says, In 1 Kings 15, the Bible indicates that the kings, rulers at the time, both sinned and made their people sin. Uh, do you think that the rulers of today, elected officials, presidents, to mayors, can make their citizens sin? In light of this, how can Christians proceed wisely? And it's a very, very good question in the, in the name of context. I will mention the, the verses you're probably referring to here. So in 1 Kings 15, 26, it's talking about uh, Nadab, son of Jeroboam, and it says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. So we have that thing there of a leader causing the people in general to commit a sin. 
And a uh, very cool question, Jed. There's uh, some some fairly intricate Bible stuff in there. There's also uh, a very actionable thing, which we like. So where would we start? It's a great question. Um, I have a sense of what might have inspired you to wonder about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I <don't>, <laughs> Um, so a couple of of quick Bible-y things that these other brothers will do a much better job of than I can, um, but just, just to set the stage. So, um, first of all, uh, God had what can be described as a covenantal relationship with, um, Israel. Uh, he does not have that with the United States of America. Right. Uh, It's super, super, super important to be clear on that. Um, the second is that throughout the Old Testament, um, we, we do see instances of God kind of judging communities as communities, um, and that is not something that's really present in the New Testament. Um, you know, people uh, have individual dealings with God. Again, I have no doubt that, that both Lee and Glenn will cover that in more detail, but um, just to set the stage. But all of that said— um, uh, the answer to your question is a little bit complicated. Can your uh, officials, can your rulers, can they make you sin? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know exactly if they can in terms of like they're going to hold a gun to your head and make you say a curse word. But what does happen and is basically unavoidable is that governmental decisions create the systems in which you live. And those systems have a way of hurting people, and it's very hard for you to exist within those systems without in some way participating in it. So let's take a look at a few examples. When you go to an average fast food restaurant, you are going to a place that is underpaying the people who work there. Um, Setting aside what is legal, it is certainly arguable that it is immoral for them to pay the people working there what they pay them. And you are participating in that by going to that restaurant. And so am I. Um, if we want to go further, um, when you buy a T-shirt from Target or Walmart, it's the same thing. The, the people who, who made that are really not in any way being paid a living wage. That's a, a, an unethical thing. We, we are participating in, in that by buying those T-shirts. But here's the thing about it is you do have to buy T-shirts to wear and <laughs> you, you do have to buy food to eat. and yeah. Although you can figure out how to get smarter and better about the choices that you make, um, it's going to be pretty hard to live a life where you are certain that none of your actions are in any way screwing over someone else. Mm. That's going to be really, really hard to do. Um, uh, Smarter people than I have summarized that with the phrase, there is no such thing as ethical consumption under capitalism. Um, and that is a phrase that is generally speaking true. It, it is very hard to live in a capitalist country, which the United States certainly is, and not have a life that basically causes big problems uh, for other people. With that said, God has work for you specifically to do in addressing injustice. Um, it is good in general, to the extent you can, to figure out how to not participate in the worst parts of a capitalist system. And again, that's good. That's valuable. You should do that. But God also has work for you to do in helping people that are going through a rough time. Um, We are called to care for the least of these and not just for their spiritual state. 
When you look at Matthew 25 and what Jesus describes, he's talking about, I was hungry and you fed me. There was an actual physical need here. Um, I was naked and you clothed me. There you have something that is both a physical need and an emotional need because it's very embarrassing to be naked. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. There you have a social need that people have. So yes, people's spiritual needs matter, but all of their needs matter. But the the amazing thing is there's all kinds of least of these um, in the world. There there are things that that are pretty straightforward examples like people that are uh, experiencing uh, homelessness. But uh, per our previous question, there's also the guy in your office is going through a really messy divorce um, and is just super duper having a hard time. So um, there are always ways for you to help people who are going through a rough time. Um, and God almost certainly has specific work for you to do in addressing that. So to put that all together, yes, systems which are created by governmental officials create situations where you do end up hurting people even unwittingly. It's good to try and minimize that to the extent that you can. Um, that will never be perfect. However, God does have specific work for you to do in meeting the needs of people who are going through the roughest times amongst us. That That's absolutely right. And I think a wonderfully a practical way to take that and a lot of very good stuff. And Lee, uh, where would we take it from there? Well, I completely agree with everything that Jeb was saying. When, when we look at some of the Old Testament stuff, um, you find some really, really, it, it does get really, really specific and granular. I mean, some of these kings were setting up, um, basically, they, they were setting up, uh, kind of temple type situations where they were encouraging the people of God to, to basically engage in idolatry. And, you know, we're not in that kind of situation. Like Jeb was saying, we're not in a, you know, our country is not in a covenantal relationship with, with God, even though some people say it's a Christian nation. It's not. Um, never has been. And never has Treaty been. Treaty of Tripoli. I will come to your house and read a parchment. So help me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this this it was not founded on Christian principles. It was not it, yeah, it was not founded by Christian people. Um yeah, this is a this is a totally different thing and that's 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 been miseducation. Um we're in a different situation and definitely there were specific cases in the Old Testament where the kings did set up centers for idolatry and encouraged that kind of behavior really for the economic development of the country. But even in those cases, we see examples of exactly what Jed's talking about, even if that were the case, um, even if certain systems are set up that are in some ways may be unavoidable or may appear to be unavoidable. There was a place where a prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah um, stood up for the Lord and in a, in a very, you know, just kind of a big deal situation, just kind of a crowning moment of the Old Testament, and then became so discouraged because he felt like, you know what, I had this amazing moment, but I've come to realize that I'm completely alone. There's nobody else in the society, Lord, that stands up for you. And the Lord said to this dude, hey, I know you're discouraged, but get up, and I want you to go to this place and do this thing. And by the way, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to bail. And there was a, that's just a very interesting moment because what the Lord is saying is exactly, he's kind of underlining what Jeb was laying out for us, which is even when there are systems put in place by unrighteous leaders, there is an individual 
moral responsibility that is achievable on an individual level that the Lord recognizes. The Lord said, I have this many people who are are on what I'm on. Um, The way that translates to us is there are things that we're not aware of where we are complicit in, in stuff that is that that is backwards that is wrong that is unjust and that in some ways is unavoidable uh because we are just under those systems at the exact same time exactly as Jed's saying there are really specific things that God is calling me to do um i have neighbors who are in need i have there there is uh, uh there are local and state you know jails and penitentiaries there are poor people in my town. There are people in my town who, you know, um, who did not get a, uh, a government stimulus check because they are not, con- you know, because they're not uh, legally citizens of, citizens of this country, and yet they've got to feed their families. Um, what am I going to do about that? Well, that, that I have a very specific call in that situation. In other words, I want to be one of the people that the Lord says, yes, within this corrupt and unjust system, I have some people who have not bowed the knee, who are answering the call, who are finding the needs and meeting the needs. In the words of the, the late John Lewis, when you see something that's wrong, say something, do something. And that's what we're being called to do in the midst of a society that is backwards and screwed up, that we have opportunities, sometimes really granular, sometimes seemingly very small, to do something that matters in the life of somebody else to make this world a little bit more just and merciful place. The really, really cool thing about this, um, off of everything that Jeb was saying, the really, really cool thing about this is that the Lord Jesus counts stuff that we think is really small as really freaking huge deals. What he said is, if you give a cup of cold water to one of my little ones, you will not fail to receive your reward. Man, that is amazing. There was a woman who gave two pennies, and Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. In other words, there's kind of a, a scale, a, a, a scale that, that, goes against our kind of metric and measuring and reckoning that the Lord counts the, just the, the person who's willing to stand up, the person who's willing to do something, respond to the Holy Spirit, to respond to the needs of others. He counts it in a different way than we do. It's a big deal. Hebrews chapter 6 says, he will never forget our work of faith and our labor of love. And so what I would say is, even if there are systems that are in place where we are unaware that we are somehow a part of those things, in the way that the Holy Spirit is making you aware of needs, say something, do something. It's a big deal. And the Lord counts it in humongous ways. I want to be one of the ones who has not bowed the knee. And and you do too. We can tell it from your question. And so you're going to be able to do that in a, in a huge way, and the Lord's going to count it. Oh, excellent, excellent stuff from Lee there. And Glenn, where would we close this out? Well, I think both of these fellows have done a great job of this question. I, I really do. Uh, I, and I'm going to reiterate what both of these guys said. Uh, if you think that God still judges people in groups, uh, in, you know, in a New Testament era, 
then you need to go and immediately get a copy of your church's budget. (laughs) (laughs) And you need to get concerned, because I have never in my life seen a church budget that wasn't an abomination to a holy God set up by people who were absolutely sure God was never going to have anything to say about this budget. So let's <laughs> let's uh, it, that's that's where we would start if we thought that the Lord was judging people as as, as groups. So let's let's set that part aside because uh, you know there's a theological point to that. But of course, your question is really going beyond just a mere theology of the situation. You're asking about you know here is a. Uh, and in in First Kings fifteen, uh, uh, you know, some evil leadership happening, and sort of, you know, how do we think of it? Are they forcing these people to sin and kind of follow their sinful ways and and you know, uh, uh, wrong beliefs and all that kind of thing, or are they sort of being led into it and they're just kind of going along with it? I think when things get really bad, it, there's, it tends to blur the lines between making us sin and heavily tempting us into it. You know, when things, <clears throat> excuse me, when things get really bad, we tend to say, "Oh well, you know, I didn't have a choice. You know, what was I going to do? Just n- not care about this crazy situation? Of course, I had to do whatever." So it seems like, yeah, I'm being forced into something there. Uh, when it's these fellows point out, and rightly so, you you always have a choice. But I, I think all of that obscures a deeper issue that we really ought to spend some time focusing on, and that's anger. Because mm. holy crap, dude, the anger. Wow. There's a lot. And here's the problem with anger, particularly, you know, in, in the, the weeks and months that we've recently come through here, is there's a, a temptation to say, well, first of all, the anger is legit um, and that God isn't against us having anger. As the Bible says, you know, you know, in your anger, do not sin. So there's the idea that you can be angry and it's not inherently a sin. But then there's also the verse about, you know, that man's anger doesn't bring about a righteous life that God's calling us to. So, you know, if we hold both of those ideas at the same time, it gives us a sense of don't judge your anger, et cetera, and so on, but recognize you have to quickly move on to it or it's just going to be ugly, unpleasant, a waste of energy at best, at worst, doing some kind of damage that you can't undo. But the problem that we have when it's, you know, something that a, a, a ruler is doing in this case is we look at that and say, my point of view is so justified and what they are doing is so unjust mm. that that means all this anger is, it, it's really kind of justice adjacent. So that's what this is really all about. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's worth looking at what is the anger doing to you? Mm. 
Uh, how is that affecting you? How is it robbing you? How much, how much joy is it pushing out of your life that you're not experiencing? How much peace? Holy cow, dude, can you use some peace right now as you're hearing this? I can. I don't have time for the anger. I need the peace. To, you know, I got to make room for the peace here. I think it's also worth looking at, and this is going to be a tough thing, but I really want you to look at your life and say, if it's any kind of leadership, the boss at work, uh, you know, leadership in your church, uh, political leaders, any kind of whatever, how much of whatever is happening with the boss or the leader or the whoever it is, how much of that is affecting your life? Really, really. It does in, in certain material and, and, and tangible ways, but I tend to I think we tend to look at whatever's happening with the powers that be and say they're controlling things, they're gonna destroy everything, they're gonna kill everything. And it's like and I can't give myself permission to be happy and be at peace until we crush and destroy the evil people. Well, here's the thing. We can crush and all destroy all the evil people, and let's by all means let's do that. But we never get back to the kind of stuff that Lee's talking about, which is love, which is helping people in need and lifting them up and encouraging them and putting a smile on their face. That's the battle that we're meant to be fighting. Final little point on this and just maybe something to give you comfort. God knows how to clean house, and mm. he gets it done. Uh, if he's angry about something, Maybe we need to let him be angry about that. Let him clean house and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I, I may need to be fighting an injustice, but I may also need to be giving comfort and love and encouragement to somebody right now. So let God lead you in that. All great stuff from all these guys. What a very, very cool question. Um, one, one thing I'll tack on the end here, just to add a little bit of a layer to this. And I think everybody alluded to it, but... Um, the actual causing Israel to sin that's being talked about in 1 Kings 15 happens in 1 Kings 12 when the king at the time creates the golden calves, which you may have heard of, and puts up two big golden idols and says to everyone, ah, you don't have to worry about going down there. You just, just stay here and worship these. So how does that apply to a modern context? There's a lot of people in power and politicians way up there who want to give you a golden calf to focus on. That could be, you know, this economic thing or this group of people, as Lynn says, this group of evil people to uh, to uh, defeat and all this stuff. And we one thing that can really can become a problem is kind of as we were joking about on the last episode with some uh, Christian stuff. And we were talking about you know, the Christian nation thing, that idea of just elevating things in the secular and the the patriotic and the whatever world to the same level is something that a lot of uh, leaders uh, will do. There's an example. We have a friend who were, who is in uh, Florida. And one of the things, cool things our church was doing was going out to kind of the pier where they were and feeding homeless people. And literally the city council and the mayor tried to make that illegal and they did make that illegal. So it was illegal to feed the homeless. And there's actually a lot of communities around the, uh, around the U S that have done that. So that's evil and bone on the face of it. And no, you know, I can't imagine a Christian person who would want to vote for that. 
But it's not just that these people would come out and say, well, we hate homeless people and we don't want them to be fed because they consider themselves Christians too. It's just that idea of, well, but hard work and the free market, and you can't get people hooked on the welfare state. So we have all these other ideas we're trying to raise up to the level of doing the Christian thing. And that is, it's not exactly what's, what your question was about, and it's, it's subordinate to the really good stuff you got from these. But there's a layer of that in there, whether it was a, you know, it's, if we have a Christian flag, because we pledge allegiance, because pledge allegiance is good, which is a real thing I found out about recently. Didn't grow up in the church and was deeply horrified. But a lot of when we try to mix those signals, it's not that a, a leader can make you sin in that way, but that is a way that things can, some lines can get crossed and certainly something to, to keep on a lookout and focus on the major things that these guys were talking about. I'm going to jump to our final question here. It comes in anonymously and says, the Bible says we should encourage people, but when things are so crazy, it feels like either telling someone to just put on a happy face or just be in denial. How do I encourage someone when things are overall not going well? And a, another very cool, very honest question. And Lee, where would we start off? Yeah, I, I I love this question, and and I think there's a there's a whole lot of this going on, just kind of with the 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 way the world is right now. Um, I think that we have like this conception uh, in the church sometimes that to encourage means to tell people everything's going to be okay or everything is wonderful um and the truth is that's not really what that word means we we actually have kind of a breakdown in terminology um to encourage someone doesn't just mean that we tell them lies or just kind of like just rosy prophecies of everything's going to be amazing let me give you a specific example of this from the scriptures this is from First uh, Thessalonians five, and if I may, I, I probably should ask permission, but I think I I tried to steal the the keys to the Bible nerdatorium. Mm. I got the the uh, wipe your code. feet for heaven's sake. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, don't let any demons in. No, not at all, <laughs> not at all. But if we could, if we could journey down to the nerdatorium even before the mic gets passed to Glenn here. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Um, yeah, as I was saying, a, a lot of times in kind of Christian culture, we have the idea that, that the word encourage just means like, just kind of tell each other, like, everything's amazing, you're awesome, and, you're, and everything's going to be okay. That's not actually what that word means. The word encourage in 1 Thessalonians 5 is... When it's it, sometimes that verb, by the way, is is used in a in kind of a a, a a noun form about the Holy Spirit, by the way, and uh and and, and as we know, the the Holy Spirit sometimes builds you up, and sometimes the Holy Spirit convicts and uh, and says, "Hey, we we got something better than this going on." But in this specific case, when it's used as a verb, that is a Greek word. It's a it's a combination word. Um, it, it's the word parakaleo, and um, the the word the the first part of that the para, p a r a that means alongside or beside. The kaleo is means to call, um, and so what we're talking about is to call alongside. Well, and there's a really really cool thing about this, which just means that there is implicit in the idea of encouragement in in a biblical sense of just coming beside somebody. Just coming up to them, beside them, 
Um, when, when I was in high school, my economics teacher was also the cross-country, te- the cross-country coach of the school. He's actually a really, really good cross-country coach. Actually, and a lot of podcast listeners won't know this, but uh, that Matt and, and, and I and Glenn's wife all graduated from the same high school. And that Glenn's wife True. actually ran cross country for my economics teacher, who was also the cross country coach. This guy won like a million state champions, these championships in the state of Tennessee. He's a legendary coach. One of the things that he did was that he didn't just coach and tell people what to do. He actually would go on the runs with the with his student athletes, and he would run alongside, you know, whoever was struggling the most. And he would run beside that person and he would just talk to him, just talk to him about their life, talk to him about what they were going through, how their classes were going, what their relationship with their friends was like or whatever, their, their girlfriend, their boyfriend, whatever the thing was. He, w- he would come alongside that person in the struggle of what they were feeling. I, I tell you all that to say this, that's what an encourager is like. An encourager is not somebody who gives you a rosy picture of some future that they don't know anything about. Biblically speaking, an encourager is somebody who can sit in the mess of your struggle just because what encouragement means is, I'm going to call alongside you. I'm going to come beside you in the thing that you're in. Because sometimes the most encouraging thing that I have is somebody saying to me, I know exactly what you're going through. Right before we started taping these two shows, we do two at a time. We do a batch recording. You know, the, the guys and I will, will hang out a little bit before and just kind of, you just we're, you know, we're just friends. And, you know, Jed and Matt and Glenn are asking me how I'm doing. And I was ranting as usual and, com, you know, complaining about things. And as, as my friends, the generous thing that they did, and it was very encouraging, was they said, I know exactly how you feel. They, they called alongside the thing that I was saying. They didn't say to me, you know what, Lee? It's going to be great. Everything's going to be great. In no time, it's going to, all this is going to be over and you're going to feel amazing. Not one of these three brothers said that. What they said to me was, I know exactly how you feel. They came alongside me in the middle of my struggle, in the middle of my difficulty, and they said, I know how that feels. I'm in a very similar situation. That's what Coach Mack did for, for his runners. That's what That's what a true biblical encourager does for their friends. You come alongside somebody and they say, I know how that feels. And then that person feels less alone. And that's where encouragement starts. Amen. Absolutely. We we all on this program try to cultivate a life of faith and hope and optimism, but church people are going to behave themselves and the Adobe Creative Suite is going to start working as it should, or (laughs) both a bridge too far. And we wouldn't wouldn't put those... Totally unrealistic expectations for happiness on Lee. A lot of great, great stuff from there. And Jed, where would we take this idea of encouragement, which if Lee, as Lee is saying, it doesn't mean uh, pumping someone up to believe everything's going to be okay. What else can it mean? One of the other things that it can mean to to build exactly on all the great stuff Lee was saying is, uh, as you might imagine, as you look at the word spelled out in front of you, is to help somebody find their courage. Mm. Um, uh, we had a, a, a bridge pastor giving a sermon just the other day. He's talking about an encouragement is about pouring courage into somebody else to go and do a thing, which goes along perfectly with everything Lee is describing. And the thing about helping somebody find their courage is 
that kind of requires you to acknowledge the difficulties. Otherwise, there's no need for courage. Courage only mm-hmm. makes sense if things are going wrong and, and stuff right. could be bad and there are there are risks and potential bad outcomes. If everything is great, no courage is required, man. <laughs> Take right. heart because everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, when you think of all the times in the Bible, the phrase do not be afraid or fear not comes up. Uh, the implication is there's stuff you might feel fearful about here. So, you know, let's let's take stock of the situation. I think that um, I think one of the hard things for Christians is that Christian culture has told us that we can have a life with no tension in it. We can have a life where everything is serene all the time. And that's not the same as having a peaceful life. The truth is that this side of eternity, the Christian life has an inescapable amount of base tension to it. Um, if you take the the old adage, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, it's true, it's biblical, and it implies a basic tension in our experience of life that we are one place, but it's not the place we were made for. It's not the place that we ultimately belong, and it's not the place that we will ultimately wind up. And so helping people find the courage and the strength that they need to deal with the tensions in their lives, big and small, is both a calling and a privilege for Christians. But again, if we won't acknowledge that there are tensions there to be dealt with, we kind of can't do that job. And so I think it requires us to, to take a pretty, to effectively encourage other people, it requires us to take a pretty different view of the world and our place in it than a lot of what a lot of, of um, Christian culture wants, wants to preach. Um, it, it, and Jesus, I think, uh, definitely got this point because uh, he said, in this world, you will have That's troubles. Right. That's right. N- not you might have troubles. Not, well, if you don't mind your P's and Q's and you know, keep your nose clean, troubles could happen. No, in this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is literally Jesus encouraging you. That is, that is, that is actually textbook encouragement that, that is Jesus saying to you, there is a tension here. Some rough stuff is bound to happen and, and unavoidably so, but it's not the total truth about your existence. It's a fact about your existence, but it's not the truth about your existence. It doesn't get the final word in your life. It doesn't get, um, it doesn't supplant God being on his throne. I, the Lord am bigger than it. You're, you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to face it. But just like Lee's saying, I'm going to walk alongside you in the midst of it. I mm. will never leave you or forsake you. I am bigger than the things that you will face. I will see you through. I will be there with you. That's what encouragement is as a Christian. That's what people need. They don't need pie in the sky. They, they need a savior who says you will have troubles. They need a friend who says, I see those troubles you're having. Let me walk through this with you. And you can do that starting right now today. Uh, that's exactly right. That's all all fantastic stuff. And Glenn, uh, this question actually makes me think back to one we answered on a previous episode where someone 
asked if working with people who are in prison has given us a little insight into just being sick of lockdown. And I think of be it people who are still incarcerated that we work with or people who are kind of just going into a long-term drug rehab kind of thing. You have a lot of experience with encouraging people without being able to tell them that their circumstances are going to change in the near future, which is yeah. a really, really kind of a club out of the encouragement bag, but you still have to do it. So what, what kind of things can we pick up from that to apply here? Well, for sure, yes. So we we work with people where the circumstances are bad. They're they're not going to be good in a hurry, and uh, there's nothing you can say about that other than this all sucks. Mm. Here's the thing, though, is that emotions are tied to circumstances. That and that's reasonable. It's normal. It makes sense. It might you might be emotional about a past circumstance that you're sort of replaying into your present because there's a trauma there or something like that. But still it's a circumstance that's, that's tied to that emotion. But virtues don't work that way. Peace doesn't depend on circumstances for it to be peace. Peace transcends the circumstances. Mm. Uh, Love doesn't work that way. Mercy doesn't work that way. Uh, kindness doesn't work this way. Uh, faith doesn't work that way. These are virtues, and they virtues always transcend circumstances universally. They, that's that's what makes them great. In other words, we have the world of our mind, our emotions, and that's tied to our everyday existence. If you're in the jailhouse, you're it would be weird for you to just think this is this place is great you know I, i'm i'm kind of enjoying it it's like camp you know it's that's not the goal so we're not trying to cheer them up about the circumstances it's looking at the spiritual dimension of your life and mm. and an ability to see beyond particularly i want to look at the virtue of wisdom so let's use a concrete example we're talking a lot of uh, abstract concepts here but um, I'm, I'm reading a, a book uh, just earlier this week, and it's a historical novel uh, set in uh, Africa in the uh, 30s and 40s. And the book itself was written in the 80s. So here's the interesting thing. There's a, a point in this historical novel where uh, you know, there's fictional characters doing what they're doing, but then the the historical figure of Nelson Mandela comes up in the book and what he was up to at that time and so on and so forth. But I, I experienced this weird feeling of realizing I know more about what is going to happen with this book than the guy who's writing it. Yeah. Because to the guy who's writing this, Nelson Mandela is a prisoner who's in jail, who's been there for 20 years, and for all he knows is going to die there. Uh, you know, apartheid is the law of the land, all that. He has no vision of Nelson Mandela being the leader of this country one day. That's just not within the realm of his imagination. But from my perspective, I can see that. I can see this in a very different way. That's what wisdom does, is it transcends mm. time, it transcends circumstances. It's, it, it, you know, it's this weird thing of, I know the, the, the arc of this person's life in a way 
they couldn't have known then that this author wouldn't know even, uh, you know, many years later. So I think for us, I'm ministering to people all the time and trying to give them encouragement, etc. Where if I look at that through the eyes of wisdom and I just pay attention to what's going on, I'm looking and saying, this person's going to get where they're going. This person's mm. life is not going to be what it is now forever. Things change. That's, you know, th- the world turns and, you know, the, it seems like things are never going to be anything other than what they are. And one day you wake up and the, the prison gates are opened and you're the president of the country. And it's, you know, just an unforeseen kind of uh, amazing development. But that's why we seek wisdom, because we can't just um, look at a cold and brutal acceptance of our circumstances and call that wisdom. That's not what it is. You say, well, I just, I'm, I'm not going to do any denial. Well, that's good. And I'm just going to see it for what it is and just take on the hard realities, man. That's great. But that's not wisdom. That's not uh, getting to the truth. Wisdom and truth are virtues. You have to go to God and receive wisdom that transcends what's happening in this moment in order to have that sense of being able to transcend it. Uh, Emotions don't work that way. We can't address people's emotions and say, don't feel what you're feeling. Uh, We have to let their emotions be tied to those circumstances which are not good and let them grieve, but in the meantime, point them towards these deeper virtues that will give them that sense of peace and transcendence. That's all uh, really, really great stuff. Uh, Some of the best advice I got when I started the job I have now was uh, from Jed talking about kind of doing one-on-one stuff with people, which was, when in doubt, say these words and have a a serious, empathetic look on your face. Wow, that sucks. And then just let that happen. If you have something more to say after that Mm -hmm. that's helpful, you can tack that on, but that goes back to, to Lee's point where he started us out about uh, offering some understanding, offering some some commiseration, and uh, there's nothing wrong with generic. Well, it's got to get better at some point. That's those are, those all definitely count as encouragement. There's something people need, especially in times like these. All right, if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. We do hope you will join us every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. for a little extra Ooh. encouragement on our bridge live cast over facebook.com slash bridge Chicago. We're going to take out the song this week. This is a Jed worship song based on Joshua one nine recorded for that said bridge cast. Take out the audio from that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. If there's something strange in your Sunday school room, <laughs> who are you going to call demon busters? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I won't be afraid of my enemies. I won't be dismayed by anything I see. Cause you go with me wherever I go. You go with me. So now I know. That's it. That's the whole song. You've got it. So you are ready to rock. Let's do it together now. I won't be afraid of 
my enemies I won't be dismayed By anything I see